Welcome to another episode of the WAN Manager Podcast. I am your host, Greg Bryan, as always, and this is the show where we talk to networking experts about the data services that make business possible. So today, our guest is Rob Schultz, and he heads the commercial team here at Telegeography, uh, where they keep tabs on prices for uh, data services all around the world. I'll let him talk more about that. And I have to say, in this episode, I'm going to have to rein myself in topic-wise a bit, because Rob, you and I have worked together for more than a decade and a half, and I have a feeling... Well, we talk about this stuff all the time. I have a feeling we could go on way too long uh, for my 45-minute format here, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah, so so welcome, uh, Rob. Why, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what the uh, your history at Telegeography maybe and what the commercial team at Telegeography does? Sure. Uh, so I started at Telegeography, believe it or not, almost 20 years ago. Uh, uh -huh. You know, I, I joined the company when we really started looking at uh, submarine cable infrastructure. Um, we had sort of moved away from voice and realized that data was a big thing. Um, and the question that I presented was, how much does it cost? Uh, so, you know, being the initial member of the pricing team, as it was then, um, basically started soliciting uh, quotations, uh, pricing inputs, transaction prices for things like STM1s across the Atlantic. Um, you know, our, our pricing service has evolved, of course, as data services mm -hmm. have. Um, you know, but that, that's kind of where it started. Uh, our team has grown to cover everything from, you know, wavelength services to IP transit in the wholesale space. Um, and, you know, Greg, you and I started the enterprise service, uh, looking at IPVPN, DIA, local access, all those components of the WAN that are so important for corporate networks. Yeah, um, and it's one of those things like plus change. My French is bad, but uh, but you know that that as as much as everything has grown and the whole market has has uh, changed and, and there's always new things to cover. Ultimately, you're still asking people how much stuff in an opaque market costs, right? So. Absolutely, and and I think the thing that's so interesting, and you know, we'll get to this a little bit, is uh, you know the dependence on geography, dependence on so many of the economic factors in different countries around the world, um, regulation. It, it all folds into this, mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and and when corporations sort of plan their their global networks, they have to recognize that not every country is the same, and, and certainly they know that. But, you know, they may question why things in the Middle East are so much more expensive than they are in Western Europe, you know, things like that. And there's justification for it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, I think to keep us, um, you know, within some kind of reasonable time limit and, and cabinet, since we could talk about so much, I wanted specifically to talk about um, the, the sort of connections between the wholesale market and the enterprise market for data services, right? But I already talked to our colleague, Alan Malden, who is, you know, sort of telegeographies and the world's expert on submarine cables and, and how that might impact the enterprise. I thought maybe with you, we would focus in more specifically on IP transit. Um, I've heard that internet is going to be a big thing in the WAN these days. Right? So, um, so maybe you could help us draw that connection between uh, sort of what counts as internet service in, in the wholesale telecom space and how that gets uh, broken down uh, into the, the, uh, the enterprise or kind of retail space. Um, so Rob, maybe first you could define IP transit for us. Um, not everyone in the enterprise world uh, interacts with any kind of IP transit. If you're if you're not an ISP or a carrier or whatnot, it may not be something that they're totally familiar with. So 
Uh, how do you define IP transit in, in our yeah, research? I, yeah, I mean, I think in, in the simplest sense, it's the way that networks access each other, right? So mm-hmm. I think uh, we, in, you know, our definition, you know, in our frequently asked questions in some of our research, we talk about a, a form of interconnection whereby the customer network pays to have traffic carried by the transit provider to the transit provider's own network, as well as all of its customers and peers. So that's a really important distinction there, right? So um, you can have relationships with an adjacent network where you only see each other, or if you're buying IP transit from an upstream provider, not only are you seeing their entire network and all of their connections, but you're seeing their peers, their customers as well. And, and that, right. you know, I think that's, that's how the global internet works. Um, and really what you have globally is, you know, a dozen or so, you know, uh, you know, big carriers that offer settlement free peering between each other. You know, they don't pay right. each other, but they invest in their networks at a similar scale where it's in their interest to, to peer with each other and share the network. Everybody else has to pay, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to, um, you know, accommodate the investment that's necessary to reach all corners of the world, you know, through all the submarine cable assets and data center assets and those kind of things. Right. And, and just to, to make it clear that, uh, that for the most part, enterprises that aren't in, say, content or, or media or something don't have enough traffic to ever get to it, either the peering kind of relationships or even sort of to need to purchase IP transit for the most part, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how sophisticated your network team is, whether, mm-hmm. and we'll get to this a little bit later, whether you have an autonomous system number or not. Right. right. Um, but, but that seems to be, the, or that is the distinction. In order to buy IP transit, you need to be able to um, run BGP and have, you have to have an autonomous system number um, that you can declare all your IP addresses through. Right. Right. Okay. And so just to, to give folks a picture of, of the kind of uh, transactions that we're talking about in terms of volume, I am currently working on our WAN market sizing report, which uh, comes from our WAN manager survey and our, our benchmarking customers, where we get a look at what sort of real multinational enterprise networks look like. And to throw some data at everybody, because I love doing that, um, you know, 70% of DIA ports in enterprise-wide area networks in our data are at the FASTE, like 100 meg level or below. It's, it's only about uh, 10% that are at the GIGI or higher level. MPLS even skews a little bit uh, less than that. The typical MPLS port size in the world is still, believe it or not, 20 50 megs. That always sounds weird to us uh, at home where we have, you know, uh, Fios or, or, you know, Infinity or something or three or 400 megs. But of course, these are dedicated services um, and, and that sort of thing. But it's been a long time since I worked on uh, wholesale stuff at Telegeography. I, even back then, um, uh, things were, were skewed much higher in the wholesale world, of course. What's, what's uh, sort of the typical um, uh, currency of the realm in, in IP transit uh, in 2021 here? Yeah, so it depends a little bit on geography, right? And, and the well, scale. That is, that is in our name, right? So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. the scale of the network players. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you're looking in developed markets like Western Europe, uh, U.S., North, well, North America, um, the big uh, hubs in Asia, you know, you're definitely talking 10 gigabits. In most cases, you're talking 100 gigabit market. Um, in mm-hmm. many cases, they prefer not to sell anything less than 100 
100 gigabit port uh, for, for a number of reasons. But for you know, customer management, you don't want to have to keep adding or, or adjusting the capacity upward if you know that their requirement's going to grow. Um, you know, from a customer standpoint, there's interconnects to be concerned about. So, mm-hmm. so I think uh, that, that's really what we're seeing. IP transit is a high volume, low margin game, right? Like people right. talk about it as a commodity right. service, a packet's a packet, right? There's no real differentiation except for like unit costs and reach, right? You know, right. the effect that you can peer with other people. So, um, you know, definitely scaling from the 10 gigabit world to the 100 gigabit world. One thing we're tracking really closely right now is when does the 400 gigabit world come to uh, reality? Mm-hmm. Um, we've definitely seen it in some metro environments in Europe where, um, you know, they're, they're introducing it into their own networks um, to be able to, you know, route traffic through the big hubs like Milan and, and uh, right. Marseille. Um, but, you know, as everything scales up, the unit, the cost per unit goes down. And that's, that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why we, we track that. And the cost per unit is always going down over time too, right? So there's multiples. Yeah. yeah it's a, but when, when thinking about the, the sort of physical plumbing of the internet, which it, it's easy even for folks, you know, sitting in, in a WAN manager kind of role to forget about that, that tie to, to the physical infrastructure. If you're talking about something like 400 gig ports, that can only happen once there's already DWDM service between the cities at the 400 gig level in in enough volume to to be able to support that kind of thing, right? So that's there we're we're still one layer of abstraction away from that. Okay, there's fiber in the ground, and then we put different uh, equipment on either end of that fiber, and we get more bits across that same amount of fiber, or we built a new submarine cable or whatever, right? Yeah, so. I mean, one of the other interesting things, and again, it depends a little bit on geography, is this shift away from sort of legacy uh, technologies, right? So like mm-hmm. before or for many years, we have tracked um, ports based on TDM or SDH and Sonnet interconnection, right. and it pretty much anything going forward in any market around the world right now is all ethernet based, you know? So, um, you know, in in particular for IP transit, seldom will you ever uh, be able to buy a port below a gigabit, right? You can buy Mm -hmm. a commitment on that gigabit port, but um, you know, you're, you're, but the transport between is going to be based on a giggy handoff or whatever. Exactly. And, and even so Mm -hmm. like uh, in, in, in in bigger markets, you know, the, the, uh, the service provider doesn't really want to handle giggy ports anymore. They want 10 giggy ports and allow you to burst up past that. So, right. Yeah. I remember what it was, maybe, maybe just within the last year or two uh, seeing a, a, press release that AT&T was finally um, turning down all of their TDM circuits in the U.S. The, yeah, no, the U.S. ILEX that were one of the big holdouts for that kind of thing. Right. right. So, yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and, and I'm not sure if we'll talk about this later, but I think the reality is that they're not adding any new SDH and Sonnet, right? The, even the equipment providers are not selling it anymore. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you have a huge install base, which they do, um, you know, you're going to carry it forward as long as you can, you know, until your customer requests or demands that you change them over to a right. more efficient, lower cost service. Right. So um, I think that's, well, that's one of the things that this is kind of a, kind of a side note from our main topic here, but, uh, but it's always interesting that, that often um, the, the last places to turn down those older technologies are the most developed markets because they have the sort of most stickiness in terms of customers when you're doing mostly greenfield development in markets like say, you know, parts of Southeast Asia or, or LATAM or whatever, then it, it, they were at ethernet long before 
you have, you know, tier two markets in the U.S. are, are the place where you still find lots of DS3s and, and OC3s and stuff like that, right? So, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, a lot of the driving force behind it is space, right? So, mm-hmm. e- you know, uh, equipment for SDH and Sonnet is much bigger than Ethernet. It uses more power. Right. You know, it's more expensive to run and harder to manage and get like replacement parts for. So, yeah. I and just the nitty all- gritty of like engineers to do it, right? You have a, a team of, of people who still know legacy technology. Exactly. Like it's kind of yeah. like Cobalt. There's still some people out there that right. know it, but right. nobody knew was learning it, right? So right. There, there's an element of that. All right, so so let's let's talk pricing a bit. Um, uh, like I mentioned before, it's been a long time since I worked on wholesale kind of research, but I, I remember in covering IP Transit when when we had to switch our sort of uh, chart output and whatnot um, in, into the the have you know a decimal point because there was a distinction between two dollar per meg and a dollar fifty per meg that we needed to make for the first time, right? What kind of prices are we talking about now for some of those key ports uh, sizes that you mentioned in, in say, maybe key IX kind of markets? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the again, the distinction is geography, right? So mm-hmm. like in North America, and, and we usually talk about 10 gig ports, but I, you know the conversation obviously is shifting to 100 gig, but mm-hmm. sort of in this conversation, we'll stick with 10 because that's universal. Um, right. You know, I think for 10 gig ports in the US, we're seeing sort of mid-teens to low 20 cents per megabit. Um, you know, that, and that's pretty standard. Um, in Europe, it's pretty similar, um, to be honest. And many of the players mm-hmm. offering the services are, are the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Oceania and Asia is kind of where we see higher, higher prices. Um, you know, in Singapore, you see sort of like a median of about 73 cents an egg. That's pretty exact, mm-hmm. but 70-ish yeah. cents an egg. Um, and, <laughs> You've uh, been looking at this recently, yeah, I can tell. Yeah. I, was, I was just checking the stats in the latest yeah. big publication. Um, and then in Sydney, you know, it's about 250 a meg. Um, in Mumbai, it's about... You know, 475 a meg, 470. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, any one of those would have been drastically cheap just even just five years ago in in Western Europe or the US, right? Yeah. yeah. And and, and really the... the, the thing that it has to compensate for is the distances between markets, the submarine right. cable capacity required to provide the interconnection with other networks, all those different things. So, you know, that geographic distance and the, and the, the technology required to um, bring it together, that's what mm-hmm. drives the price differences. Um, right. So we got a little economic geography there that, you know, Sydney being a very well-developed market with a, a fair degree of competition is still r- really quite extravagantly expensive compared to other markets, mostly because of that kind of bottleneck, because you have to get a, a long-distance submarine cable to get there, basically? It is, absolutely. Now, yeah. and, 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 and I would say that, that you know the other thing, we, we try to track all the regions, right? We look um, at all the different continents, but Latin mm-hmm. America has sort of been... Um, well, it's a bright spot if you're buying IP transit there. It's not so good right. if you're trying to sell it. But um, it, you know, it has been a market where prices have fallen very quickly. Uh, right. New submarine cap- cable capacity going from the U.S. down to Sao Paulo, in particular, um, mm-hmm. you know, with many different providers with a lot of different, a lot of new capacity. Um, you know, the wavelength prices have dropped precipitously um, on, on that route, and. Thus, IP transit has fallen. And, you know, we've been looking at sort of 30% kegers um, over the last three years for IP transit in that market. 
Um, you know, but even in Latin America, prices can differ. So Sao Paulo obviously is the cheapest at mm-hmm. sort of 70 cents a meg. But uh, when you look at places like Santiago and Buenos Aires, you know, big markets in their own right, you know, the prices are still a bit more expensive at around sort of $2 ish a meg. And there again, the answer is probably what mostly that the submarine cables tend to land on the east coast of Brazil, essentially, right? Absolutely. Around Sao Paulo or Rio, right? Yeah. So. yeah. And, and, and the thing to watch, right, is as new infrastructure gets extended into these other markets, um, you know, will the prices also fall? And I mean, I think the answer is yes. So right. uh, from all our experience, that tends to be the case. So even in IP Transit, that's a, that's a plug that it's good for everyone, uh, you know, all the way down to to the the multinational corporate uh, IT team to pay attention to the map I have behind me of submarine cables. Right, so, yeah. that makes a big difference. All right, well, how about how about the the sort of variation? The most expensive market you mentioned was Mumbai, um, but uh, what what about the sort of you know, maybe considerably less competitive or, or geographically challenged markets. Yeah. And, and again, I was trying to look for some good examples here. And, um, you know, I think the price of IP transit generally reflects the level of connectivity um, and, and to mm-hmm. some degree regulation, right? So like Mumbai is expensive because the backhaul is expensive. You know, the, right. the wet capacity to India is not, there's a lot of it, but, you know, based on rules and laws and regulation. Um, I remember the, the old half circuit rules for a reliance or whatever. Right, <laughs> yeah, right, it wasn't reliance. Back. It was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Way back in the day. Yeah. VSNL, yeah. I think, right? We used to yeah. yeah. That's what I'm trying to think of. Um, yeah. But, you know, Africa is a pretty good example, right? So uh, South Africa, there's been a ton of investment on cables going to South Africa. The prices mm-hmm. for, for wavelengths has fallen, you know, and, and prices for Global IP transit in that market is probably in the two dollars a meg range. Um, you know, we, we've definitely heard lately that it, it's going down even faster uh, based mm-hmm. on some upgrades on some cable systems. But you know, as of Q two, that's kind of the number we were looking at. Um, but in places like Uganda, which is inland, right, inland from where the cable landing mm-hmm. stations are, you know, you're mm-hmm. talking more like eight dollars a meg. So right. I guess the the point being is that not every market's the same, um, and mm-hmm. and and you really have to kind of understand what those upstream costs are in order to right. be able to account for it. And some some of that was honestly always a little bit counterintuitive to me uh, in the sense that, um, you know, for everyone thinking back to when I had this conversation with Alan or who's familiar with the market in in uh, submarine cable, you know, first first and foremost, it's it's about the size of a garden hose, more or less. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's fairly small. There, there are more these days, but there were, you know, at most a handful now to up to maybe a dozen fiber pairs. Whereas you build ducks terrestrially, you could put, you know, just tons and tons of fiber, but is it that it's the, 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 uh, market that makes it that much more expensive. It's not necessarily a physical thing, but it's that you have to trade telecoms every time you cross a border and however many borders you might have to get to, to get to that submarine cable, everybody's taking their sort of piece of that. Is that it? Um, in, in many cases, yeah. And sometimes mm-hmm. the terrestrial network capacity is a lot more expensive than a much longer segment on the submarine capacity. Right. So, right. So right. That, yeah. Well, and there's, you know, I guess a lot more opportunities for digging Right. terrestrially than, than the few anchor drops that happen in the submarine world yeah. and whatnot. So. Well, one, one other thing I did want to mention just in terms of like developing markets is like when we look at um, how internet backbones are oriented and where the, the big hubs of the world are, right? Like two really good examples are Marseille and Miami. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, Marseille, um, in many cases, is sort of, for East Africa in particular, it's where all the traffic goes, right? So, um, you know, what you'll see uh, in, in that regard are ISPs sort of circumventing the local provider. There's not really right. an IP transit market or, or you know, center of gravity, if you will, um, in their own country, and they can provision transport wavelengths to Marseille and purchase mm -hmm. IP transit for, you know, 15 cents a meg, um, whereas locally, it would be much more expensive. Miami is very much the same, you know, for, for many, many years, we've seen sort of prices driven by, you know, the IP transit price in Miami, plus whatever the transport price was, you know, and, right. and I think one evolution that we've seen is that, as prices for transport declined, people saw opportunities to sell into these um, new markets, right? The cost of entry wasn't as high. So instead of the local companies in Brazil trying to go to Miami, you see some of the bigger name um, IP transit providers looking to expand their offering in, in Sao Paulo. So, so, so there's a little right. bit of back and forth. Mm -hmm. So, so, and, and from, from a, traffic performance that that is helpful as well right because you're not doing the big trombone anymore right so a absolutely and the service that you're getting is a lot better as well right because right. like if you're buying 110 gig wave to miami to buy ip transit you're buying 110 gig wave if an ip transit provider is offering service in sao paulo they're going to have multiple paths probably at 100 gig waves running at high overhead right so you know the networks really only run at about 50 to 60 percent capacity to right. account for bursts and things like like that so the service that you'll ultimately get is going to be a lot a uh, lot better yeah so you know mentioning um that sort of trombone traffic from from sao paulo and whatnot um it, it just kind of i know this may be a, a little far afield from the way that we collect these data at telegeography but maybe you can speak a little bit to the difference maybe in any amount of price discrimination they that uh, that IP transit providers can can engage in based on that traffic profile difference. So what I mean is like if you're say a, a small ISP in Brazil, and mostly what you have are eyeballs in Brazil that are consuming content in Portuguese that that maybe largely comes from Brazil. That's very different than if you're a CDN or Netflix or something like that that's pulling most of their content from say Miami, right? Um, are, are IP transit providers uh, willing and able to sort of discriminate in pricing on the, the traffic profiles of, of the folks buying transit? Well, as far as discriminating, I mean, yes, a mm -hmm. lot of times people will give kind of a, a bespoke price based on your traffic requirements. Um, right. But I think the, the more common consideration, right, from the standpoint of an ISP is, you know, if I buy IP transit from this provider, will I be able to access all the local eyeballs locally? Are they peered with all the ISPs? Right. Are they peered mm -hmm. with all the providers in my market? So my traffic isn't going up to Miami and back. Right. That, that's mm -hmm. really the consideration. So um, in, 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 in many markets, whether it be in Asia or in you know, Brazil, for instance, um, there are providers that their center of gravity, which would, would, you'd say, would be in the U.S., right? So right. they're not going to have that fully peered network locally. Um, and then so what happens is exactly that. They can come in. They can be really inexpensive, but you kind of have to know what you're buying. So I think mm -hmm. uh, from an IP transit perspective, um, you know, that's certainly a consideration. And when we get to DIA, you know, knowing your, right. or, or, or even broadband, knowing your broadband provider is just as important, right? Knowing how they're connected, mm -hmm. knowing the services that they give, knowing how their price point um, 
compares to the cost of international transit. And we'll, right. we'll dig into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely want to obviously get to sort of um, the impact on the WAN. But the last last thing while we're still kind of talking wholesale is, you know, um, you mentioned, for example, uh, 30% uh, Kager annual declines over the past few years in, in uh, South America, Brazil specifically. Um, and, and, and that was an example of it being relatively high. Okay, you, ha- you have, uh, you know, two decades of, of looking at at this. Um, what, what's the sort of typical price decline expectation that, that folks would have, uh, knowing that it, it does vary based on, on these factors like new submarine cables and whatnot? Sure. So, I mean, I think in, in IP transit, again, the thing that we're looking at is the unit cost per megabit, right? Or the average mm-hmm. unit cost per megabit. Um, and, you know, really what that reflects um, and, and the changes in that reflect are improvements in technology um, right. as well as volumes of supply, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think what we estimate and, and it has hold, hold, held true for, for as long as I've been doing this um, is that you, know, you can anticipate sort of 20% price erosion year on year for IP mm-hmm. transit. Um, you know, it can be lumpy a little bit, right? Some years it's a little less, some years it's a little more. But, you know, for instance, when you go from 100 gig wavelengths to 400 gig wavelengths, right, the cost to go up, it might start at 4x, but it will come down to like two and a half X at some point. Right. You know, and, and I think that's that's really what you see, sort of the economies of scale really play in right. to driving down unit costs and enabling this price erosion. Um, so yeah, all, all our models, and we've been doing it for a while, um, kind of have a baseline assumption of about 20% you know, in, in most mm-hmm. markets. Um, and, and again, we have to tweak it again based on supply uh, coming, coming new but, uh, or new entrants. But th- that's, that's kind of what we see, I would say. Well, and it's funny on that note, um, aside from, from the sort of Econ 101 understanding of, uh, of telecom is, is always a, a little bit uh, interesting in that respect. Um, you know, but I recall many years ago, talking to people in the IP transit world who are like, you know, I can't, I just can't sustain business at these price points. Now, these are when price points were, were astronomically higher than they are now, right? Sure. It has been some consolidation, but for the most part, they stay in business. And I, I, I have to assume that that what you see is that is that demand continually outstrips that, that cascading price, basically? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the... the you know, if you're talking 20% price erosion, we're talking at least 25% uh, capacity growth. So um, mm-hmm. there, there's lots of new requirements for new submarine cable systems. I mean, the, the install or the the base transport requirement, say across the Atlantic, is so huge now. Like adding 25% in the next year requires like a new submarine cable system, right? Right. So and, and right. that that's really advancing as well, right? So before we used to see four, eight fiber pair cable systems going across the the ocean. Now you're talking 12 to be standard, 24 coming coming in the future. So mm-hmm. you know it's the same sort of construction costs, but it's um, averaged over many more different fiber pairs that are operating at much higher transport technologies. Right. So, yeah. So, you know, in the future, all that's going to kick in and um, allow us to continue to watch all the things we watch and communicate with all the people we want to communicate. Yeah. I think that, that, that that's where I, my mind goes on this, which is that, you know, you might've thought, okay, well, once, once we make that transition to sort of, uh, you know, internet delivery of entertainment and whatnot, there's, there's that big bump up in demand for that. But once that's done, 
But then you had COVID come along and everyone stops using their, uh, you know, handset on their desk and starts using, uh, you know, Zoom and, and Meet and whatnot. So there's, it seems like there's always something that comes along that uh, is, is bandwidth hungry that, um, that people are going to want access to. So I suppose that may end someday. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. well, I mean, just look at what you get from your television. You know, the mm -hmm. regular TV is probably good enough, but now we get a 4D high definition. 4K, yeah, 4K OLED or whatever yeah, it's called. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And, and they charge you more for it too, right? Right. Um, do you really right. realize the difference in service? I don't know. I haven't tried yet, honestly, but. Um, I have bad vision, so. <laughs> exactly. With the glasses, yeah. does it really matter? Um, but, uh, you know, things, improvements like that in service delivery. Delivery, I think will consume ever more bandwidth, right? So. All right. Well, this is the WAN Manager podcast. Let's, let's, you know, wow. I think most people can probably sort of make some of these connections of why I talk about wholesale uh, pricing and, and markets. But um, yeah, let's get more directly into uh, what is uh, the impact uh, for the IT infrastructure team at a non-telecom internet oriented company. Most of them, like we said, are not buying IP transit directly or, or peering or anything like that. Certainly there, there's some out there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the internet though is increasingly sort of a, a primary, at least secondary method of site connectivity in the enterprise WAN. So why, why does this matter to, to the enterprise, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the traffic has to go over the backbone networks, you know, to reach the content and come back, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I think the, you know, again, in sort of the context of the enterprise network is, you know, how is your traffic getting there? Is it um, competing with other people's traffic to get there? Are, are they sharing infrastructure with other customers, um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and affecting maybe performance? So um, depending on applications, you know, I think enterprises get really sophisticated in sort of the, you know, latency and jitter um, requirements of specific applications, right? So they have to be, in, have to ensure that their network um, service can, can sustain that or, or, or right. allow for it. Well, so, so then maybe the, maybe the sort of follow-up question to that is, is should enterprises think about getting involved in the, the, the wholesale kind of, because certainly there's enterprises buying DWM uh, wavelengths now increasingly between their, their data centers or whatever, or are, are there some hurdles there maybe that, that make it unlikely for enterprises to jump into that market? Yeah, I think just the engineering capability is a big hurdle. Mm -hmm. Like you have to be mm -hmm. really committed to it um, to be able to run your autonomous, your own autonomous system. You know, I right, think there's some right. advantages, but, you know, we, obviously you and I talked to lots of multinationals that would rather pass that on um, to the service providers, mm -hmm. right? You know, you don't have to deal with big network outages and things like that if somebody or does a wrong configuration in a routing table, right? You don't want to have to deal with any of that. Um, you right. want to pay somebody to do that for you. So, so I think that's, that's probably the big difference. Um, Actually, an upcoming episode, I'm, I'm going to talk to Michael Martin and McKenzie about just the, the challenges in upskilling people for the, the smart networks in, you know, whether that's uh, SD-WAN or incorporating intelligence in a SASE, stuff like that. The last thing you also need to do is get uh, maybe sort of telecom engineers to be at every multinational as well, right on top of all the other skill shortages they have, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So so that being the case, um, th there is still this direct relationship right between your wholesale IP backbone 
market and the cost of the services that the enterprise consumes, DIA, even business broadband, which is essentially glorified consumer broadband with with a few extra guarantees, right? Is th- is that kind of like a one to one relationship? So when you mention something, for example, like uh, you know Sao Paulo prices being under thirty uh, percent annual pressure, does that mean DIA prices in Sao, pa- Sao Paulo are, are going to be under similar pressure? We haven't seen it yet. I actually spent some mm-hmm. time looking at it. I think there's a bit yeah. of a lag, right? Um, mm-hmm. But ultimately, DIA will. I think you know, and thirty percent might be extreme based on who's serving those markets. But I think mm-hmm. the um, the idea is that there, you know, in terms of the service itself, um, you know, when you're buying DIA, you're buying an uncontended synchronous connection to your upstream provider or to your internet provider, right? right? And um, the idea is that a packet entering the service provider network is the same as all the other packets that they're carrying. Um, Mm -hmm. Broadband is a little different, right? So, I mean, I think the, the... Ultimately, IP transit is the cost of global interconnection that the ISP is paying. Um, But there's a big variance, right, in terms of it being one-to-one for their customers. You know, I think everybody agrees that no matter what you're purchasing from a broadband provider, um, there is some contention. Like the contention Mm -hmm. ratios for Mm -hmm. business broadband might be much less than, say, a consumer network. Um, But but there is still some sharing and you're not going to get you know, if you have a hundred meg connection, you're not going to get a hundred meg internationally necessarily. So, so I think that's that's really the thing to watch out for. Well, it would be weird if that were the case because it's still a fact uh, from everything that I see when I do this kind of analysis. That you know, for the most part, DIA is is often ten x the price of broadband, right? You know, sure. so that that's what you're paying for is you know, yeah. uh, uncontended service and and carrier grade SLAs and all that sort of thing. Right. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's my observation in on that front is that um, in, when I look at like, uh, you know, we like to make these like chloropleth maps of, of prices around the world. When you look at the map of say IP transit and DIA, they're not that different in terms of the, the geographic spreads. Whereas it seems to me that the broadband is a little bit flatter across the world in price, um, uh, I think, for this reason that you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the idea is that broadband really has to reflect the local market and the Mm -hmm. local market's ability to pay, right? So um, the package or the stated capacity, download capacity might be one thing. The price might be really inexpensive, yet the service may not be exactly Mm -hmm. the same, right? So so I think that that's sort of where it slides a little bit um, Mm -hmm. and can differentiate between, you know, services in different countries. Yeah, which which is a great point. That's sort of when you're in the DIA market, that market is really designed for the multinational enterprise who has a certain expectation of what these kinds of data services should cost, as well as how they should perform. Whereas if if you're you know because we we do talk to a lot of uh, IT infrastructure WAN managers who are thinking about shifting a lot of their WAN traffic to the internet, and 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 there's definitely sort of um, an element of of caution there in terms of you know, uh, uh, broadband that is is designed for the the consumer's ability to pay in a developing economy is really probably very unlikely to, to be the performance level that is necessary for for uh, business. Yeah. You know, all right. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, all right. So, um, 
let's talk more about DIA and broadband, I guess, then um, in, in terms of uh, just just the the spread and um, and and what's what's uh, kind of available out there. So um, one question we get asked um, is, you know, along, along the lines exactly of what I was just saying that of okay, broadband is so much cheaper. Um, I, I can accept that the performance is is maybe uh, a little bit um, not completely on par with DIA or especially MPLS because I can get so much bandwidth, right? So if I can get a giggy broadband connection uh, that um, is is the same price as say 20 megs of MPLS or DIA, um, how, how do you see that working out in, in terms of performance and price? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it is funny, like the broadband networks have improved so much, right? And the capacities mm. that um, they're offering are, are so much higher than they ever have been. Um, right. For a lot of end users, you know, that difference, you know, if you get, if you pay for a giggy and you only get 850 meg, you're probably right. not gonna, you know, you're probably not gonna notice, um, you know, and, and just, I mean, still thinking about some of the benchmark work that we do, right? And how many T1s and DS3s and stuff like, yeah. I mean, two megs they're are out still there, out there, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there's still a tremendous number of those. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think broadband really does offer, um, a, you know, a uh, inex well inexpensive, but um, an, an offering that that allows you to achieve higher capacities. Mm -hmm. But but again, it's for like direct internet offload, right? Like that that right. that's that's kind of the the service that it's providing. You know, allowing you to get onto the internet. Now, if you have private traffic, it's probably not the best way to do it necessarily sure right well and 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 that that gets us into topics that we've covered a lot on this show of, of you know software defined networking and whatnot yeah, right but absolutely but yeah but the, i i i'm like that that's where i wanted to go with it um in in this conversation is in terms of thinking through that sort of balance again if i'm if i'm considering you know having a hybrid network and and adding in a lot of internet that there's a place where I would caution people like, you know, again, we have tele geography in our name, but, but it's, it's very uh, uh, key here, which is that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you can get giggy for a sort of the, the price of, of, you know, a much smaller MPLS or, or DIA port in the U S or Western Europe or, or parts of Southeast Asia or whatever um, uh, that's probably a sensible thing. If you're looking at some markets that that low cost um, is, is for a service that's maybe very, very different than, than what you're used to, whereas, you know, MPLS and DIA as a carrier grade service from a sort of, you know, global or regional sort of provider um, have in mind multinational corporations as as the customers and international traffic profiles and whatnot. Whereas I I, I do think um, you know folks should be cautious about the sort of heroic price savings of, of broadband sometimes in some markets where their traffic's just going to get handed, you know, right off and, and isn't really a network design for business, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things you had asked about earlier was sort of a mismatch between broadband and IP transit prices. Right. And, and I think mm -hmm. that is a really good metric to examine um, as part of your evaluation of whether broadband is suitable, right? So, right. Um, you know, I, I tried to come up with a couple of different uh, that's examples. That's a good point, yeah. Mm -hmm. With a couple of examples, actually, uh, for you. But, um, you know, when, when your broadband price is cheaper than your IP transit price, right? Um, 
That's a bad sign. That's probably yeah. a bad sign, right? So yeah. you know not 100% of your uh, traffic that you're generating could be international, right? right. Um, so, right. That, you know, I, a couple examples in the U.S., I was, you know, we, we track business broadband um, packages, uh, you know, try yeah. to do it in every country around the world and see uh, what's available in terms of uh, broadband services for enterprises. And um, in the US, Verizon Fios is really well known. They have a 100 megabit service up and down for like 70 bucks a month, right? Mm -hmm. So that's 70 cents per meg, more or less. Right. And then the IP yeah. transit price is, say, 18 cents a meg or 15 cents. Right. So there's a nice healthy gap there, exactly. right? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. um, but in markets like India, right? I, I, this was a good example. I, um, broadband in India is really inexpensive and, you know, it does mm -hmm. accommodate, you know, the, the local market. So there you have, um, I, or business broadband, a plan for like a hundred meg at $50 a month. So, you know, 50 cents a meg, but the global mm -hmm. IP transit price is closer to $5 a meg. It's about four sixty dollars a meg, right? <laughs> right? So, so there's a big yeah. difference. Um, yeah. and, 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 and that's, that's a thing. Now, now there are, are some other odd things in India, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. the, those are local ISPs, but then you have new market entrants that totally disrupt everything. You know, Reliance right. Geo came in uh, or Geo came in and they started offering mobile broadband services, um, 150 bucks a meg for free, right? So mm -hmm. uh, I guess right. that's one way right. to get customers. That, that's more consumer yeah. play than uh, enterprise play. Right. But, you know, those kind of disruptions can happen. Yeah, no, I always remember uh, India being a strange market in that sense. And, and when you uh, in the sense of that, that local uh, data is really, really cheap and international is really expensive. Right. So, I mean, you just like like thinking through submarine cable routes like Marseille to Mumbai is is way more expensive than Marseille to Singapore, right? right. <laughs> and so, but and and then squaring that circle with it being one of the cheapest ISP markets in the world, obviously you're suffering in terms of of traffic profiles and quality and stuff like that, right? right. I mean, there's no way you, you can make that work, right? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, and and that's that's you know, it's an odd market as well, like with local access, right? Like we've we've done mm -hmm. a lot of examinations right. of local access costs in India, and it it's really inexpensive compared to even say Western Europe or the U S right. You know, so, um, yeah, it's, it's probably in for the same reason. There's local companies, they throw up a telephone pole or, and, and there again, if you have, you know, things on poles rather than in uh, trenches, then it's I mean, perhaps more dangerous, more likely to be, uh, you know, uh, stripped of whatever, uh, valuable metals are on it and that sort of thing. Right. You know, sure. yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think that gives us a really good picture of kind of um, how those markets relate, why why the sort of um, non telecom company might still want to pay attention to IP transit, especially that last point of that, like understanding that if you know what IP transit is in that market, you can tell, you know, sort of what you're really getting from an ISP. Um, you know, any other thoughts that you have to sort of close us out on on why the sourcing team at uh, at a multinational should pay attention to to the wholesale market, um, uh, or or what aspects of the wholesale market they should pay attention to? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think first and foremost, infrastructure, right? So where mm-hmm. are new cables being built? Where are um, new competitors entering the marketplace? Um, right. You know, I think that, that in Africa, for instance, there's a tremendous amount of new investment coming online um, in the next couple of years, you know, connecting countries that have never been connected before, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think that's one to watch. Brazil was was the perfect example of that, right? right. Um, you know, and, and Johannesburg to a degree. But, you know, if you look at my Miami to Brazil or Marseille to Johannesburg, the prices fell a lot because of new capacity, because of cable upgrades, you know, right. and, and, and that really drives everything. I mean, you need wavelengths to power IP transit backbones. You need wavelengths to connect MPLS routers, right, mm-hmm. you know, for IP VPN services, all those things, you know, the wavelength is the underlying um, cost element. Um, and, and sorry to interrupt, but it brings me back to sort of 20 years ago in, in graduate school for geography of that the the connections between the, the the connections around the world. And we see this on our maps over there tend to be east, west, not north, south. Right. And right. so when you have those those points like Johannesburg and, and Sao Paulo are perfect examples that it took some time to get the north, south built into the east, west networks. Right. Yeah. So, and I don't mean that in the uh, in the telecom OSS, BSS sensor. Right. So, yeah. right. Uh, Your Sonata API. Right. Yeah. Um, no. So and, and, the, and then the other thing I think to really watch out for is um, how does your requirement compare to the next higher um, capacity increment? Right. Like I think one, one of the things that has held true in all the scenario evaluations that we've done in way on cost benchmarks is like, how do I go from 10 meg to 100 meg? How much more is that going to cost? Um, if I go to a gig E, how much more is that going to cost? Well, right. you have to recognize that as these networks scale, the unit costs go down. So those higher prices come down faster. Um, and, mm-hmm. and the other thing, and, and this is a little bit more aligned to, to transport, but like Ethernet transport, if you're looking in Ethernet transport, you know, between sites in data centers, don't buy a giggy. Uh, you know, I mean, the differential price between a giggy and a 10 giggy is minimal. Um, and some mm-hmm. carriers are trying mm-hmm. not to even offer 10 giggy or not to offer giggy anymore because they need to, to deliver it. They have to have additional right. equipment to break it out. So they'd prefer mm-hmm. just to give you a giggy and let you go with it. Um, so, so I think, I think those a 10 are, gig. Yeah, yeah. Or, sorry, mm-hmm. yeah, a 10 gig yeah, yeah, and just yeah. go with it. Um, yeah, and then that transition, like we mentioned a little bit before, from legacy technologies to newer technologies. You def- if you have those legacy technologies in your network, um, you know there's co- there's them. cost savings yeah. to be yeah. had, right? You know, yeah. Take advantage yeah. of that, and you know suffer through the transition because then you'll be in a place where you can um, take advantage going forward. I mean that that argument's kind of old at this point, but it's like the Ethernet handoff should be easier at the office anyway. So really, get rid of the TDM, absolutely. Sonnet, SDH stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, No, but, but yeah, I think just that general awareness of infrastructure of new investment. Um, you know, I think. One thing that we track as well, sort of in the cloud world, are where are the cloud providers going? You know, the big content guys as they expand expand into your local market. Um, that's a pretty in- good indication that you know prices for international mm. services will come down just because right. they bring that scale. They're the ones that are investing right. in new uh, cable systems of twelve and twenty four fiber pairs, right? And, right. and, and lowering the unit costs pretty much for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. All right. Well, Rob, this was really interesting. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I can't believe it took me this long to get you on the podcast. But (laughs) Well, it was a pleasure. It was always great. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks. All right. Look forward to hearing all the others. Bye. 
Thanks very much for listening. The WAN Manager podcast is brought to you by Telegeography, a division of Primetrica Incorporated, and is edited and produced by Jane Miller. I wrote the theme song you're listening to right now, and we get administrative canine support from my dog, Honeybun, who you might hear chiming in from time to time when the mood strikes her. If you want to learn more about our data, head over to telegeography.com, where you can find our blog that covers many of the topics we hit here, and you can sign up for our WAN Manager newsletter. Until next time, have a great day.